Good evening. I was um, struck by how Jeff said what a great title this was. What he did not tell you was who picked the title, who wrote the title, who designed the title. So it is a great title. I claim no credit for it. I simply have the task and responsibility and privilege of trying to say something about it with the help of God. So thank you very much for coming. I'm delighted that you're here. The the title is, I think, a a very challenging one. Is Jesus past his sell-by date? In other words, is Jesus the historical figure that historians don't really dispute there was a man called Jesus of Nazareth? He lived and he died. The question is whether he rose again. We'll come back to that. But historians of all shapes and stripes, beliefs, whether they believe in Christ or not, whether they are Jewish or atheists or whatever they are, there isn't any serious dispute amongst proper serious historians that there was a man called Jesus who lived and died. The question that we're being asked to consider is, so what? So what? A figure of history 2,000 years ago, what's it got to do? What's he got to do? with anything today. There was a census in 2021, and as a result of the census, they were able to record this, and this is a quotation from the census report. For the first time, in a census of England and Wales, less than half the population, that's 46%, describe themselves as Christian, whatever that means. That is a 13% decrease from the previous census, they do this every 10 years, in 2011. Despite this increase, Christian remained the most common response to the what is your religion question. So although across the UK, more people say they're Christian than any other brand of religion, The numbers who claim to be Christian in the UK, that number is falling, steadily eroding. And for the first time in a census, it is less than 50%. Not only has there been a decline in those who claim to be Christian, whatever they mean by that, but the the values and the, the norms and the the ideas that are part and parcel of a Christian heritage seem to be all around us ebbing away, dissolving. So that now, the traditional values of Christian thinking and teaching, in fact, the Judeo-Christian values of the dignity of people and who they are, they're created by God and the image of God, a lot of these ideas are now regarded not just as old-fashioned and a bit strange and past their sell-by date. But there are lots of people in our world who think those ideas are positively harmful and to be resisted. And yet there is a, a writer called Tom Holland who wrote a book in 2019 called Dominion. Holland is not a, a believer. He was brought up as a Christian, but he, as a teenager, recounts how he lost his belief in God. But he, in this book, sets about trying to 
explained that the West as we know it, that's the UK and America and Australia and the English-speaking world and a lot of the European nations and civilizations, that that group of countries and civilizations, although the pews are increasingly empty, it remains, he says, firmly moored to its Christian past. This society, this culture, this heritage we have, whether people like it or not, whether they acknowledge it or not, has been shaped and molded by Christian teaching, says Holland. To live in a Western country is to live in a society still utterly saturated by Christian concepts and assumptions. He says 2,000 years on from the birth of Christ, it doesn't require a belief that he rose from the dead to be stamped by the formidable, indeed the inescapable, influence of Christianity. So Holland, who's not a believer, but a historian, interested in the ancient world, has come to the conclusion that our society is shaped, molded, affected by a Christian heritage, which a lot of people nowadays don't want to see, don't want to acknowledge, don't want to respect or recognize. But whether you like it or not, that's where it's come from. That's not to say it will continue, but that's where it's come from. I heard Holland in an interview recently where he was challenged on this very thing. And the interviewer said to him, that's all very interesting in terms of the cultural significance, but the problem, Mr. Holland, is this. That at the heart of the Christian message is a belief in the supernatural. And the commentator read to him a passage that I'll read to you. It's 1 Corinthians 15. And it's one of the earliest statements of Christian belief where the writer, who is Paul, says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that. And then he lays out the essential, the, the bare skeleton, the non-negotiable ingredients of the Christian faith. One, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Two, that he was buried. Three, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And four, he appeared too. And then there's a list of names given. The first two statements that he, he died and was buried, historians say, yes, we accept that. But statements three and four, that he was raised to life again and that he appeared after his death, these post-mortem appearances, these are supernatural events. So the problem is that if you just want Christianity and Christ as a, a great moral teacher, as a philosopher, as someone who, who is kind and pats little children on the head and teaches us to be nice and play nice and share out the pizza nicely. If that's what you think Jesus is, and that's what Mahatma Gandhi thought. Jesus was a great teacher, a great moral influence, a great example. But the writer of this, at the heart of the New Testament, says, that doesn't cut it. That won't work. At the heart of the Christian message, at the heart of the Christian teaching, is the, the claim that this central person, Jesus of Nazareth, who lived, who died, on day three, rose again. 
and appeared. Now, that takes quite a lot of believing, doesn't it? And that's the bit that people struggle with. Could such a thing happen? So just to remind you of how critically important it is, I want to take you to a description of one of these appearances by an eyewitness on the, in the week after Jesus claimed to have been brought back to life. It's found in John chapter 20, if you have a Bible, and if not, the words will appear graciously on the screen. I'm reading from the ESV. And this is just to remind us that the struggle people have with this idea of resurrection is not a new struggle. In fact, one of the followers of Jesus, Thomas by name, he was skeptical. I admire Thomas. I think he's got a bad press and I don't think he deserves all the criticism that he gets. Thomas wanted to be sure you see, if you're going to follow a man who claims to be risen from the dead, if you're going to invest your whole life and everything you have in that claim, you'll want to be sure. So this is verse 24 of John 20. And I break into the story where the Lord Jesus has appeared to the disciples on resurrection day, which was the Sunday. He was put to death on the Friday. He comes back from the dead in a bodily form, not a spirit, not some sort of heebie-jeebie something that's floating about in the air, a real body, glorified. He could eat and drink. And he appears to his followers, but Thomas wasn't there that night. He was somewhere else. Verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Just pause there. Look at how strong that is. It's not, I'm prepared to suspend my skepticism. I'm prepared to see if there's some evidence. He said, I will never believe. You're not going to catch me with this unless I can use my finger as a screwdriver and see those holes and put my fist into his side where the spear went in. Then, if I can do that, if I can do that experiment, in testing the truth of these claims, then I believe, not unless. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. Notice he's come through locked doors and a wall. Real body of a supernatural glorified kind If you don't see the supernatural in this, you're asleep. This takes a lot of believing. He stood among them and said, Peace be with you, Shalom. Then he said to Thomas, 
Put your finger here. See my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of God. What Thomas saw drew from his lips language that no self-respecting Jew of that time would ever have dreamt of saying. For a Jew, there is one God. He is eternal. He is invisible. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is the creator of the universe, the one who keeps it all going, the one who gives it meaning, the one who is the moral governor, entitled to call everyone to account for their behavior and treatment of his planet and how they have responded to him. That's the God of Israel. The God who intervenes in space and time and brings his people into the promised land. The God who speaks to them, works with them, prepares them for the great promised Messiah. That's the God of Israel. For a Jew to say to a man, you are God and my Lord, was unthinkable. Unless it was true. He wasn't some sort of soft-headed, spiritually zoned-out druggie who saw something, someone, and, 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 and wanted to try and put woolly words around it. Here is a Jew who's hard-headed, because we saw that, unless, I'll not believe, I'll never believe, unless, now falls before Jesus and says, you are my Lord. Oh my God, you are divine. Not that I, I understand it, I'm sure, thought Thomas. But I believe it. It's true. And that's the challenge. Can we really believe this is true? It's, it's a great story, great drama. It would make a great movie, wouldn't it? I mean, if, if you were looking for a, a dramatic interesting story that didn't have to be true to be a good story. This is a great story. But that's not what this is. This claims to be true. That's the heart of the Christian message. The people who we've been reminded are suffering all around the world today are people who have come to believe and to stake their life upon the claim that this is not make-believe, wishful thinking, hopeful projections onto some sort of screen in the sky, if only it were true. These are people like the early disciples who have become convinced this thing is true. But can we really believe it? I was brought up in a family that took me to church every Sunday. That's the way it was. 
didn't always enjoy it. But I knew I couldn't do anything about it. And when I was seven, which is the age of Seth at the back, I made a decision that I thought I would follow Jesus and surrender my life to him. And I made that commitment as a boy of seven. A decade later, I decided it wasn't enough just to cling on to my boyhood beliefs and traditions. It wasn't enough just because my parents had taught me these things. It wasn't enough just because my social circle was based around these things. If I was going to commit my adult life as I stood on the edge of my adult life just before I was 18, I realized that unless I made a decision for myself that this was true, I wouldn't be bothered with it. I didn't want to spend my life on something that was a crutch but wasn't true. There are lots of things that will help people get through life and stagger along and limp through their difficulties. What I wanted to satisfy myself about was, is this true? And so as best I could, really unaided, not very well directed, I started to gather books and materials and to read. This is going back a few decades. I won't tell you how many, but it's, it's a few decades. And those of you of a certain age would recognize if I mentioned some of the books, but I won't because I'd only embarrass you if you recognize those names. But I, I got involved with various, what would now be called apologetics. I'd never heard of the term. I didn't know what it meant then. I'm still not sure what it means, but there we are. I, I started to read some of this stuff. Paul Little and Josh McDowell, there I've mentioned two names. But the one name that really helped me was a Belfast boy, Jack Lewis, C.S. Lewis. And I came upon him, I stumbled on him. I didn't really know the story of his life, how he had been brought up in East Belfast and lived on Circular Road. Little Lee, the house is still there opposite CIYMS training grounds. How his grandfather had been a minister in St. Mark's at Dundella and how he had been brought up in church and had been taught the gospel and then as a young man, very bright, went off to education in England and went to Oxford and when at college he cast aside all of that Christian stuff. It was for the nursery, it was for the, the weak-minded and he left it behind. And he spent several decades following his own agenda, his own wishes, his own plans, his own magnificent career and he was a very distinguished scholar. But the problem with Jack Lewis or C.S. Lewis was that God had given him a wonderful mind. And God used that mind to lead him to the place where he doubted his atheism. And it was through his intellect that he came to see there is something more than the stuff around. There is some substance in these Christian claims. And he came to the point of surrendering and describing himself as the most reluctant convert in all of, of England. And then became well known as a writer of Christian books, novels and stories, the Narnia stories, as well as theological books that he wrote. But it was his, his struggle with these things that I find most helpful because, well, 
I was learning some science, not that I understood much of it, but I was being told that science, Darwin and evolution and all of that stuff, proved that the Bible wasn't true. I was reading history and I was discovering that back in the 18th century, there's a man called David Hume from Edinburgh, and he said, miracles, they cannot happen. So I was being told that science and philosophy ruled out the Christian faith before you got started, before you come to the Bible, such things cannot happen. They didn't happen because they can't happen. And then I came to see with the help of Lewis and these other writers that that isn't true. That science does not dislodge God. Science describes what happens. It doesn't tell you if there's anyone behind it. Philosophy is the, the description of, of how we think life works and the meaning and significance, but it doesn't tell you if there is someone behind it. You have philosophers who believe in God and philosophers who don't believe in God. Philosophy will never tell you the answer. And so I came to see, and Lewis helped me and others too, that it was perfectly possible to become a theist, that is someone who believes there is a God, this wonderful creator, sustainer and sovereign, and the Christian God who made the universe, who sustains it, who loved the world and gave his son, and that it was perfectly possible to be intelligent and a believer in the Christian God. Lewis was an example, but there were many, many, many others. If you were looking at those things now, I'd recommend these couple of books. Peter Williams, Can We Trust the Gospels? Explains how the Gospels as we have them are utterly reliable as historical documents because that's what it comes to. They, they record events not as a fiction, not as a, a fable, but as fact. Peter Williams, who is based in Cambridge, is a wonderful writer explaining there is no need to be embarrassed about the, the New Testament Gospels. They stand up to rigorous, tough questioning and scrutiny. Another writer that I found helpful in recent times is this man, Richard Bowcombe, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, explaining that when you get into depth and in looking at the Gospels, what is remarkable is that all the little clues that show that the writers were there describing plants and weather conditions and places and names that only people who were really there at the time would have known. That people outside of that time and place would never have dreamt of, couldn't have thought of, and had no Google to research. So these writers are modern resources that would help me if I were going back in time to my teenage years on that quest. But I stumbled through it with the resources I had. And God in his grace allowed me to investigate and satisfy myself to the point that, all right, this is true. And the central thing that persuaded me was this, the empty tomb.
Lewis puts it this way, Christianity of false is of no importance. If it's true, it is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be, the one thing it cannot be, is moderately important. So going back to our question, is he passed his cell by date? Well, the answer to that depends on this question. Is he a corpse of blessed memory or the Christ who was risen and alive? Because if he's the Christ who's risen and alive, how could anyone say he's passed his cell by date? He's the most relevant person in the history of the universe. If, however, he's a rotting, decomposing corpse, then he wasn't even a very good teacher. He had some ideas, but that's all they were. And ideas are aplenty. Go to the self-help section in the bookstore. You can stock up, fill your boots with books telling you how to live, and they're just as good, bad, and indifferent as anything else. And why would Jesus be any better than anyone else if all he could do was make these big, bold claims and then find that he was nailed to a cross and he, he's rotting in a tomb? Not a terribly impressive leader. But if on day three, the one who claimed to be in special relationship with God, the one who claimed to be equal to God, the one who claimed to have authority to bring truth from God, the one who claimed to be the one who was going to go and make the sacrifice that would forever deal with the problem of our rebellion and corruption and guilt before God, if that's who he is, and he really did rise again, then he was right. He wins. And who is there who is more relevant or important than that? And so what I want to do in the time I've got is to just very quickly explain to you why I came to and still believe that the resurrection of Jesus really happened. A spring day in Jerusalem in the year 30 or 33, depending on which calendar you use. It doesn't matter. It was an April day. And it was a Sunday. Historians who have looked at this, and lots have, agree on 10 facts that I'm going to very quickly name for you as pieces of evidence. These are accepted by friends of Christ and foes of the faith. One, Jesus died of crucifixion. Two, he was buried. Three, his death caused his followers to despair and to lose hope. Four, a few days later, the tomb where he was buried was empty. Pause there. That's not disputed. The question is, why was it empty? Not the fact, but the explanation. Fact five. The disciples had experiences that they believed were the literal appearances of the risen Jesus. That was their claim. Six. These disciples were transformed from doubters, afraid to identify with Jesus. Some denied him. They all ran away. 
And they were transformed into bold proclaimers that not only had he died, but that he had been brought back to life again. Number seven, the message of this risen Jesus was the center of the preaching in the early church. I read to you from one of the earliest writings in the New Testament, Paul to the Corinthians, explaining that at the core of the Christian message was this, he died, he was buried, he was raised, he appeared. They were at that from the start. This wasn't something that was added later. It was right from day one. Number nine, as a result of that, the church, as we call it, this community of people following Jesus as alive, that organization, the church, was born amongst Jews who believe, like Thomas, in one God who doesn't come in a body and show himself and do tricks. And that group spreads dramatically around the Mediterranean basin. In fact, 10, first century Jews who followed Jesus switched their day of worship from the Sabbath, which is Friday sunset to Saturday sunset, and they say, the special day of the week now is the day he rose. We are Easter people. We are Sunday morning people because that's when he came back to life. So those are the 10 facts that historians have got to take. And they've got to find some explanation for these 10 facts that fits all of them, explains them plausibly, satisfactorily, not just some of them, but all of them. And the three that are the critical ones are number four, the tomb was empty. Number five, these experiences, which I'll call the post-mortem experiences. And number six, the transformed lives. I want to just focus very quickly in the time I've got onto those three facts and ask, how do you explain those things without the supernatural? How do you explain those things without the resurrection? The empty tomb? Well, the usual explanation without God, without the supernatural, is that they made a mistake. The thing about mistakes is that they're easily cured. If you've gone to the wrong place, as they say, well, it was easy for the authorities to say, hold on, you went to the wrong tomb. Here's the corpse. Relax, everyone. There's nothing to see here. Go home. Others say the body was stolen. Despite the guards, despite all the precautions. And the obvious question is, who would do that? Why would they do that? And if it were the followers of Jesus who stole the corpse, this is the most magnificent scam in the history of the world. It goes this way. Let's steal the corpse of Jesus and hide it somewhere else, and then let's go into the city where this happened and tell everyone that he's alive, he's the Son of God, and let's go out into the world, even though we'll be persecuted, even though we'll be put to death for this lie. It's such a great way to end your life. Let's all get together and go off and tell the world this fable. Who's with me? Who's with me? What nonsense. So how do you explain the empty tomb? Well, if you believe that there is a God, there can be acts of God. 
And if there is a God, he can raise his son from the dead. Fact number two. These post-mortem appearances. I can give you a list of ten different appearances drawn from the Gospels. Let me run through them very quickly. And what you'll find is that they happen in different places, indoors, outdoors, different times of day, to different individuals of different backgrounds, different sizes of groups. And the big point is, not one of them expected it to happen. Not one of them. They thought it was all over, show done, finished. So John 20 tells us about Mary, one woman, meeting him in a garden. Incidentally, one Jewish scholar says that that for him is the ringing endorsement of truth, that no one would make up a woman as a witness because at that time, women were not fit as witnesses in a court of law. So if you were going to make up a story of Jesus coming back from the dead and you wanted the prime witness, the first person you put on the scene is never going to be a woman, with all respect to the ladies. You just would never do it unless it happened. Luke 24 says later that day there were two, a couple on the road, who met him on the street, walking along. Luke 24 tells us Peter, one man, met him. Luke 24 tells us there were ten together in the upper room, indoors. So we've been outdoors, on the street, individuals, couples, now a group of ten indoors. Then we read John 20, it was the same 10 plus Thomas, indoors. John 21, it's outdoors on the beach, a barbecue. Then in Mark 28, appearance number seven is on a mountain in Galilee, different part of the country, on a mountain. Then Paul tells us in Corinthians that on one occasion there were 500 plus saw him at the same time. And he says, many of them are still alive. In other words, if you want to check this out, I can give you their phone numbers, email addresses. I can give you their details. You can check it out. Number nine, James and the Apostles, 1 Corinthians 15. And finally, number 10, Acts 1, the Mount of Olives. Now, when you go through those different locations, you'll see the variety of numbers of people, locations, some are male, some are female, some are mixed groups, some are small, some are large. Why do I highlight that? Very simply this. The normal explanation for these, if you don't believe in God, is that these were hallucinations. These things were imagined. Well, psychologists tell me that the thing about hallucinations is that they happen in a particular place at a particular time to people who are expecting it, who are emotionally vulnerable. And so this data, this set of information, blows that apart. It doesn't fit. This is not one person who was expecting to see and then saw what they were expecting to see. These are dozens of people who didn't expect this and saw it despite what they expected. In all sorts of places. Hallucinations doesn't work. And then thirdly, the change in their lives. My hero, Lewis, warned us to be careful about what he called chronological snobbery. In other words, 
We as people of the 21st century, we think that we're smarter, more sophisticated than people who lived in earlier times. And one explanation for all of this and the change of lives is, well, they were a bit simple-minded. They were primitive people. They didn't have streaming services. They didn't have Netflix. They didn't have Google. They didn't have all the things that we have. They, they, they didn't even have electricity. I mean, imagine life without electricity. They didn't have any of these things. These are rough, raw, unsophisticated dummies. That's who they were. And so they'd believe this sort of thing, that people can rise from the dead. That doesn't work. Why? Well, at that time, one of the leading groups amongst the Jewish nation, in fact, the high priest and his buddies, belonged to a philosophical group called the Sadducees who denied the resurrection. Such a thing did not happen. So you're not going to push those guys over and say easily that there was a resurrection because you guys are waiting for it. They were not waiting for it. They didn't expect it. They didn't believe in it. And in Acts 17, when Paul goes to Athens and explains the gospel of the Lord Jesus and gets to this point, some of them laugh. Why do they laugh? They laugh because they are sophisticated, smart, first century people who know that when a person dies, they stay dead. That's the experience of people throughout history. These were not dummies who believed anything they were told. They were not gullible people. These are sophisticated, smart people like you who know that such things don't happen unless there be a God. And if there be a God, there can be acts of that God. And that is the explanation the Christian faith gives for the tomb being empty, the appearances and the transformed lives is that God is behind it. God does this. God makes the difference. And that has been the story throughout Christian history ever since. And you might have met people whose lives have been changed by the risen Lord Jesus. Mine has. Why? Because he's still up to date. He's still active. He's still relevant. He's still connecting with people and transforming the broken, the guilty, the wounded, the lost, because he is the Lord. If he has been raised in the power of an indestructible, endless life, how can he be irrelevant? It's a nonsense. And so the Christian message, if this really happened, means... He is who he said he was. He is Lord. He is God, the Son, equal to God the Father, God the Spirit. And when he said that he would return to judge the living and the dead, we've got to take that seriously. He meant it. And it means that we too, if we die, as followers of Christ, will be raised to life again with him. And those who die not accepting him, they too will be raised to life, to face judgment. Because Jesus committed to return and to judge the living and the dead. Every single person throughout history, the greats of history that you read about in those history books, the celebrities that some of us foolishly follow, 
The, the people that you've never heard of, every single individual, because no one is unimportant to God. There are no little people. Every single individual will come before the Lord Jesus Christ and either see him and meet him as their savior because we have recognized who he is in life now and surrendered, repented, yielded and followed him, trusting him, or else be sent away forever from his presence into that place of indescribable horror where there is no relief, no release, no second chance, no escape. That's why Jesus is not past his cell by date. It hasn't even arrived yet. He's coming back. Let me finish with another quotation from that fellow Lewis. He puts it this way. By rising from the dead, Jesus forced open a door that had been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has opened. This is Jesus, the Son of God, who cannot be irrelevant, who is timeless, the Lord of history, who demands our surrender and repentance and trust commands all people everywhere to follow him. And he deserves it. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.